July 13, 1977. It was a hot, muggy night in New York City. The New York Mets were playing the Chicago Cubs at Shea Stadium, and the Mets were losing. Again. My dad, Vincent Amari, has been a Mets fan for decades. That night, he was listening to the game over the radio from his apartment on the Upper West Side. But then, something strange happened. All of a sudden, I hear the announcers saying, well... And the lights have just gone off here at Shea Stadium. All the lights are going off in the stadium. We've had a power failure here at Shea Stadium. The lights are all off with the exception of the emergency lights. A second or two after that, all the lights went off in my apartment. It was pitch dark all of a sudden. So I knew immediately that uh, this blackout was a citywide blackout. The New York blackout of 1977 looms large in our collective memory as an almost mythic event. The New York City area and its 10 million people were blacked out last night by an electrical power failure that all... For many, it encapsulates the slide New York City had taken in the 1970s, a slide into crime and into urban chaos. Mayor Abraham Bean declared a state of emergency. Because when the lights went out, so did people's inhibitions. Some looters roamed the streets yelling, it's Christmas time, it's Christmas time. And so it was, as thousands of them broke security fences and windows and helped themselves to all kinds of merchandise when the blackout hit. It was mayhem in New York. There was looting throughout the city, in Times Square, Harlem, Brooklyn, Queens, But amidst the all the looting, all the terror, all the destruction, there was just one murder. And that one murder it might not have been part of the chaos at all. It might have been planned. Not by someone who anticipated the blackout, but by someone who saw an opportunity to kill in the dark. I'm Clara Mari. And I'm Rachel Bailey. And this is Shoe Leather, an investigative podcast that digs up stories from New York City's past to find out how yesterday's news affects us today. This season, we're focusing on the 1970s. We look beyond the bell-bottoms in disco to explore what made this decade notorious in New York's history. A decade during which the Big Apple went by a far more sinister nickname, Fear City. Fear City was in full swing on the night of the infamous New York blackout. That one murder victim was Dominic Siscone, a 17-year-old from a neighborhood in Brooklyn called Carroll Gardens. Dominic loved Carroll Gardens, and Carol Gardens loved him back. He was a kid with swagger, a kid with heart, but all that changed in seconds because of a bullet from the shadows. More than 40 years later, Dominic's murder is still unsolved, despite decades of police attention and even some anonymous tips. We wanted to know how that was possible. How could such a tight-knit neighborhood be the scene of the only murder of the blackout? How could Dominic's family still be looking for answers decades later? What we found was much bigger than Dominic, bigger than one murder, bigger even than a blackout. We found a culture of silence that kept Brooklyn in the dark for years. A culture so deadly serious that just opening your mouth could get you killed. This is season two, New York City Drop Dead. You're listening to Keep Your Mouth Shut. So on the night of the blackout, the city was in chaos, right? Right. Absolute Lord of the Flies style anarchy. Yeah, let me throw some stats at you. 
1,600 stores ransacked by looters. More than a 1,000 fires were set. Parts of the city literally went up in flames. There was something like $300 million worth of property damage. Almost 4,000 arrests. The power went out because of a series of lightning strikes at a nuclear power plant. It left all five boroughs in the dark. But here's the thing. In Brooklyn, in the mostly Italian, working-class neighborhood of Carroll Gardens, things were going okay. Yeah, some people were freaked out. But it was a close community. So for others, the atmosphere was more like the 4th of July. It was maybe a combination of uh, a Mardi Gras, New Year's Eve, and, and a, a semi, uh, I don't want to say right, but uh, chaos. Some people were petrified of what was going on. Other people were taking it like, oh, it was party time. That's Charles Scholl. He's lived in Carroll Gardens all his life. So did his parents, his parents' parents, etc. His family ran this popular bar called Par 3, which sat on the corner of Court and Nelson Streets. They had emergency lights, so Par 3 turned out to be one of the only places in the neighborhood with power during the blackout. And yet, it was just around that corner that Dominic was shot and killed. Witnesses said he'd been standing just down the block around a garbage pail fire with a small group of friends and his brother Andrew. They were just hanging out, singing, enjoying the novelty of the blackout. That's when, all of a sudden, Dominic turns to Andrew and says, I think I got shot. Andrew doesn't believe him at first, thinks he must be jittery because of everything going on. But then, Dominic goes down. Andrew catches sight of the shooter and bolts after him. Dominic, meanwhile, is stumbling in the other direction, towards par three, where Scholl sees him. Scholl was 19 years old at the time and helping out at his parents' bar. People might have thought he got hit with like a, uh, a bottle rocket. You know, he had a small hole with his back. I remember just hanging out and, you know, in the dark, some people had flashlights and, and candles and stuff. And, and uh, then we, we hear this screaming and, uh, and it was Dominic. George Suarez was a local kid who hung out with Dominic's older brothers. He says that moment was just total confusion. Dominic was trying to tell his friends what was happening. And he says wow. it's burning, you know, and and nobody had a, a clue what the hell had happened. But then... And I think his last words were, I'm shot. And, uh, you know, they realized he was shot. They all started to realize that Dominic had actually been shot. When that happened, everything was silent. You know, it was uh, probably one of the scariest moments for me and everybody else that was there, you know, and you couldn't see everybody's faces, so that even made it more scarier. No one knew who shot Dominic, but once people finally figured out what had happened, they sprang into action. Bystanders helped Dominic into a car and rushed him to the hospital, but it was too late. The bullet had ricocheted inside him, hit vital organs, and killed him. Back in March, Claire and I went to the scene of Dominic's murder. It was nothing like July 13, 1977, starting with the temperature. It is so cold and it's windy. This is, this is not a fun day to be down here. We're right, we're right here, finally. So this is, I think, a very different neighborhood than it was in the 1970s. It's beautiful. It is, it's... Trendy. It is, it's upscale. 
Interestingly, there's a church right there. Right. It's called St. Mary Star of the Sea. It's a Roman Catholic church. Al Capone was married here. We started to retrace what happened that night based on eyewitness accounts of the shooting. Shooter comes here, shoots Dominic. Dominic goes staggering around in front of the bar where the light is and where people are. Andrew goes sprinting in the opposite direction. After the shooter, shooter shoots at him, cuts him across the eye, hops in a car and drives away. Later, Andrew would describe the person as a well-dressed man, but that's about all he could make out. And you know, a number of people we've spoken to have made the good point that it was pitch dark. Exactly. And so whoever did this was not a novice with a gun. So, Claire, you spent weeks trying to track down Dominic's family. I did. How did that go? Well, it took a while. Hi, I'm looking for Michelle Gregorio. Oh, no, it's your number. Okay, thank you. Is this Mildred Gregorio? No, this is Dominic Seller Tuxedos. Oh, uh, wrong number. It was not easy, but eventually our hard work paid off. Hi. Hi, Rachel. Are you recording? I am recording. Yay! Tell me what happened. Oh, I just made another call to Mildred to one of the um, numbers that I had not had any luck with last week, and she answered. No way! Yep, and she's willing to chat. She seemed really fine with it. So I finally got Dominic's older sister, Mildred, on the phone. Okay, we're here. All right, fantastic. And now I'm recording, so we're all good. We talked for a while, and she told me all about Dominic. He was born in 1960, the youngest of four, with two older brothers and his sister, Mildred. They were a close family, and those siblings adored their baby brother. He was a sweetheart, to tell you the truth. He was tough, but he was sweet. He was helpful. You know, he had a big heart. And he was funny, very comical. I mean, I'm three years older than him, and he used to have me in stitches. Mildred shared some photos of Dominic with us. He seems sweet, a little silly. In one picture, he's probably around 10. He's posing at the pool in swim trunks, gesturing at himself with his thumbs and puffing out his little boy chest. He's got dark wavy hair and dark eyes. His Italian roots are pretty obvious. There's Dominic at the beach, buried in the sand, Dominic swinging a baseball bat, You can see his confidence growing as he ages. He grew up to be tall and broad-shouldered, a really handsome kid. You can see him learning his best angles for photographs, leaning forward, his head tilted just so. But the mischievous little boy was still there. He's sticking his tongue out in one picture. In another, he's dressed up as, of all things, a pizza chef. Mildred says he was good-natured, called everyone toots, but that he was also fiercely loyal to his neighborhood and friends. A protective type. Exactly. She says he'd go out of his way to look after people. And sometimes, that meant getting into fights. If someone was bothering a girl, he jumped right in and made sure that they stopped. You know, he was, uh, like, he wasn't afraid to step up with some people would, you know, like, mind their business. Uh, He should have minded business, but he didn't. And he would help, you know, you leave her alone, blah, 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 whatever. You know, he stood up for himself and the people that he loved. Dominic actually wanted to be a boxer when he grew up. But he was complicated. 
He dropped out of school and had a few run-ins with the law. He went to Rikers for a few months on a misdemeanor charge. We spoke to half a dozen people who knew Dominic. They say he wanted to be the tough guy, but that didn't necessarily mean being bad. I don't care what they said in other articles about Dominic being in jail and Dominic being a tough guy or, you know, that kid was a good kid. And Dominic was a kid. He was only 17 when he was murdered. Mildred says he was a real mama's boy. Their parents divorced when Dominic was an infant, and even though he looked like his dad, he was closer to his mom. We used to go with my dad every Sunday, and just Mm. because my mom was going to be home alone, Dom wouldn't come. Dominic was so loved by his family and friends that a lot of people we spoke to wondered if the shooting might have been a case of mistaken identity. They thought maybe Dominic was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And so it made us wonder, did the police have any suspects? What did they know about what happened that night? So to try to answer that question, we wanted to get our hands on the police records from this case. Something we didn't think would be that hard, considering it happened in the 1970s. We thought police would want to talk about this investigation. They've spoken to journalists about it before. Maybe our podcast could bring some new attention to a very old, unsolved case. Legal Detective Falk. Hi, um, I have a question about a FOIL request I made. Yes, um, go ahead. So I submitted this request about a week ago, a mm-hmm. little less than a week ago. Um, I haven't heard anything back, and I was wondering if you could help me understand how I could expedite the process uh, well, of getting these records. But every time we tried getting our hands on those records, we hit a roadblock. We tried several more times, but no luck. We just couldn't get our hands on the records before publication. The police told us that because the case is still considered active, disclosing the records would interfere with an ongoing criminal investigation. But we thought there might be another way in. The NYPD's cold case squad is investigating, so we hoped one of their detectives would be able to give us more information. And I actually got one of them on the phone, but he wouldn't tell me anything until he got explicit approval from NYPD's press office. So I called them. Um, we're more than happy to help you, especially, you know, if you were referred by, you know, somebody within the department. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can send us a quick email. Okay. Have, send an email there with your specific request. Okay. Information you're looking for, who gave, you know what I mean, or everything you just told me. Um, and then we will respond accordingly. Okay. Um, and how fast right. do you think, um, I couldn't anticipate a response? Uh, probably sometime today. Oh, great. Okay. Yep. That's All amazing. Right. Thank you so much for your help. Thank you so much. All right. You got it. Bye-bye. Bye. We are still waiting on that approval. It was dead end after frustrating dead end. But media attention is important in cases like these. In 1997, after a Brooklyn newspaper published a 20-year anniversary story on the murder, two anonymous tipsters told a detective that they might be able to identify Dominic's killer. But they were afraid to come forward. They were afraid because they were like whispering or like they didn't say too much or whatever. They knew who killed Dominic. Uh, but they couldn't say who was some junk like that and um, hung up the phone. People being unwilling or unable to talk is something we heard over and over and over again while reporting this story. There's something we haven't told you yet about the weeks leading up to Dominic's murder. Something that could help us understand why someone was able to shoot Dominic and get away with it. 
my brother Dominic had a fight a couple of weeks before, a week before on on Henry Street uh, with some people. In that neighborhood, there were guys who were uh, supposedly connected. Mm-hmm. Gangster stuff. I don't know. My brother had a fight with one of them. Mildred says Dominic was trying to sell drugs, uppers, illegal pills, on a block in the neighborhood. But it wasn't his turf. Supposedly, he was over there selling it. They told him, they came up to him and told him, you can't do that here. This is not your neighborhood. You know, get the hell back down to Court Nelson, right? Hmm. And my brother said, I can do whatever I want, wherever I want. You're not going to tell me. You know, keep your mouth shut. You're... <laughs> Yeah. You're telling people you just just in case, whether it's rumor or not rumor, you keep your mouth shut. You don't mess with people who could have the power to send someone else to hurt you. You know? Yeah. yeah. So shortly after that my brother got killed. All right? Yeah. And you think and, and you, you and I you think, think I think it was. I think it was absolutely positively connected. Okay, let's take a step back here. This was a huge moment in our reporting. It turns out that Mildred thinks her brother's murder is mob-related. At the very least, she thinks the people who did it were connected. And she wasn't the only one who thought so. After Dominic's murder, their mom was suspicious too. My mom went crying to everybody. My mom went into two connected people that she knew because she was born and raised down there on Columbia Street. She knew all the gangsters from her day when she was a young girl. And the family just knew everybody. They all hung out on the same block. So according to Mildred, the neighborhood had ties to the Italian mob. And while Dominic's family wasn't directly involved, she says they couldn't avoid bumping into it. It was just a normal part of life for them. Mildred remembers going as a kid to visit her great-grandmother in Red Hook, another neighborhood in Brooklyn. She had a club down on Columbia Street, which was uh, like a front. When you walked in the front door, there's my grandmother sitting in the window, like an old Italian woman. She says that in the back of the club, there was the store. And when you open that door, there was a bar, liquor round table, big round table, where these people used to go play cards back there. And that's who Mildred thinks Dominic fought with before his death. The mob, or at least someone connected to them. She thinks they were angry that he was selling drugs on their turf, and so they killed him. So we wanted to find out, could she be right? Was Dominic's neighborhood really as mobbed up as Mildred said? In places like Carroll Gardens and Red Hook, absolutely, the mob, the mob, the mob is organizing everything that's going on. It's almost a company town. That's Fritz Umbach, a professor of criminology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He actually lives in Carroll Gardens, and he says the neighborhoods where Mildred and her family lived, Carroll Gardens and Red Hook, were the ideal locations for the mob to do its business. And Red Hook has this criminal element because of the long-standing. Um, corruption and criminal activity that occurs with the Port of New York. In other words, the mob was in Red Hook and Carroll Gardens because those neighborhoods are near the Port of New York. Lots of local Italian-Americans worked on the docks, 
and that made it easy for the mob to do its work, like smuggling in drugs from overseas. That's an important point. The mob was smuggling in drugs from overseas. It's worth taking a second here to talk about this. Umbach and other experts we talked to pointed to The Godfather as the source of a myth that the mob wasn't involved in drug trafficking. This drug business is going to destroy us in the years to come. I mean, it's not like gambling or liquor, even women. In the movie, Corleone and the other Dons say that selling drugs is against the mafia's moral code. I don't want it near schools. I don't want it sold to children. That is the myth, according to Umbach. And in reality, they're, you know, uh, they're pushing um, drugs, heroin is in the 20s and 30s. Um, and it's not just low-level people freelancing, it's all the higher-ups. Umbach explained that the mob's involvement with drugs in New York City goes back decades. But it was a top-down sort of business. They're controlling distribution on the ground, but increasingly they start to sort of franchise the distribution. Um, and what they're doing is they're... They're selling the right to sell the heroin. Basically, the mob brought the drugs in, but then worked with low-level drug dealers to actually sell it. Penalties for selling drugs were steep in the 1970s, so they usually left that to other small-time dealers. These are the guys that Mildred thinks Dominic fought with. Guys who were, as she said, connected. Not actual mafiosi, but guys who had ties to the mob through the drug business. And Mildred thinks that even though Dominic was selling pills, not heroin, that these drug dealers might have wanted him out of the way. He was interfering with their business. But some experts we spoke to aren't totally convinced that Dominic's murder was mob-related. Instead, it might have been something simpler. A turf war just between drug dealers, having nothing to do with the mob. Here's Alex Hortis, an expert on the mob in New York and author of The Mob in the City. You know, New York had sort of like these invisible maps and visible grid lines where kind of the organized crime families kind of divided up or 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 even lower level that not necessarily mafia but like you know drug dealers even to this day you know like they keep territory so to speak you know you deal there and you deal there and you deal there and if you cross that there's problems mob related or not dealing drugs in carroll gardens wasn't exactly a safe line of work we know this because if dominic's murder was related to drugs it wasn't the only one a New York Post reporter writing about Dominic for the case's 40-year anniversary discovered that three more people wound up dead on the same corner where Dominic died, just a few years after his death. Among them were a known drug dealer and his girlfriend, who'd been shot and left in the trunk of a car with black hoods over their heads. They were found when someone noticed blood dripping onto the pavement. We may never know exactly what happened to Dominic, but with that said, Every expert I spoke to, including Hortus, agreed that the facts of the case could point to a mafia hit. Here's Umbach again. That seems entirely plausible, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it could be that uh, they weren't allowing uh, much drug trafficking um, or they were simply one of the, the drug trafficking in their own hands. Okay. So you do think um, that, so, so it, it very much could be that he had a run in with it. With yeah, the mob yeah, at some level. That is consistent with everything that we know. Now, before we go any further, there's something you should know about me. Something you should know about why I got interested in Dominic's case. The truth is, I wanted to investigate what happened to Dominic Siscone 
because his murder sounded familiar. I'm Sicilian American. Remember my dad, Vincent, who was listening to the Mets game broadcast on the night of the blackout? He grew up in Sicily, a large island just southwest of the Italian peninsula and just north of the African coast. I've spent my whole life hearing stories about how wonderful it was. Days spent among groves of citrus fruit, sipping almond milk and munching on Indian figs, hot, lazy afternoons in the shadow of ancient Greek ruins. But when I finally visited Sicily myself in the summer of 2015, I discovered a darker side of the island. I was curious about my family's history, so I was interviewing my grandmother's cousin, Bettina Barbera. She was talking about what she called bad times. The interview was in Italian, so I won't play very much, but there's one part I want you to hear. About 45 minutes into the conversation, Vitina said something that took me completely by surprise. In the early 1980s, just a few years after Dominic Siscone was murdered in Carroll Gardens, my great-uncle discovered a body lying in his vineyard in the Sicilian countryside. The dead man's car was parked on the side of the road, burnt to a husk. My family's certain it was a mafia killing. Vitina told me the man was killed because he knew something, and they didn't want him to talk. In other words, they didn't trust him to keep his mouth shut. I learned a lot during that conversation. I learned how the mafia had terrorized the town when Vitina was younger, how they were still terrorizing the town decades later. Assassinations every six months or so, gunshots at a public bar in the town square. I learned how the mafia extorted money from my own relatives by sliding anonymous threats under their front door. I learned how frightened they were. And that's when I began to understand how it happens. How a culture can develop where someone could be shot in a public place and their murder never solved. The sort of culture where you keep your mouth shut. There were witnesses to Dominic's murder. We don't know exactly how many because we never got to see the police reports. But there were people on the street that night. So why hasn't this case been solved yet? And what are police doing about it now? Unfortunately, the detectives from the cold case and homicide units couldn't speak with us. But at least there's one person from law enforcement willing to go on the record. Hello, this is Rachel. Oh, how are you, Rachel? Good. Uh... Remember Charles Scholl, the 19-year-old from the bar where Dominic collapsed? He went on to become a cop. And not just any cop. He rose to become a Brooklyn police commander. He's retired now, and he's not willing to talk about the current investigation because he doesn't want to get in police's way. But he did agree to talk about the case broadly. For one thing, he told me that Dominic's murder didn't get much attention at the time. There was still so much going on that when they took him to the hospital, there was still pandemonia. You know, if it was just another night without the blackout, uh, it would have been a total different scene. Remember, the city was in a blackout. You had people screaming, you had yelling. And like I said, uh, you know, I don't think till like they found out when the smoke cleared that, uh, you know, the kid died. What just happened? You know, I don't, I don't think people really realized it. In other words, 
the blackout didn't help. And if Dominic's murder was related to the mob, police had an even bigger job on their hands. I don't think that the police, real NYPD, it's fair to say, really had any kind of major um, effective enforcement ability against the mafia as a whole in the 1970s. That's Alex Hortis again, the expert on the mob in New York City. He says the city's law enforcement didn't really have a handle on how to deal with the mob at the time of Dominic's murder. Mob-related homicides were kind of notorious for how difficult they were to solve um, for various reasons. For, you know, for obvious reasons, people didn't want to talk. Even the, even the best police officer you know, would have a very hard time getting a witness to talk um, if, they, if they thought it was mob-related. We asked Tortoise why people were so tight-lipped. He told us about a culture of silence rooted in fear, a culture I recognized from my own family's stories. Put simply, people were terrified of the mob. They were they were ruthless. They were, you know, bloodthirsty, um, sometimes, you know, just outright psychotic, you know, extremely violent um, people, the mafia. You know, I think the biggest, you know, common theme was the use of fear and coercion to, to, to frighten the neighborhood. And whether Dominic's killing was related to the mob or not, that culture of silence has taken its toll on his family. Early on in our reporting, Scholl hinted that the Siscones hadn't exactly been cooperative with the police investigation. But Mildred had a different story. The detective now, years later, started to call my mother. And the detective said, uh, went to my mother's house and told her, you know, someone called. They said, we might be getting close to closing this case, blah, blah, blah. My mother would have to relive the whole thing. Tell the whole family, oh, my God, they're going to get the guy who killed Dominic. You know, and nothing came of it. In the end, revisiting the case over and over without closure was just too hard on Dominic's mother. So Mildred put her foot down with the detective. So I called him. And I told him, listen to me, unless you're going to call my mother and say we got the guy who killed Dominic, make this your last call to her. Don't call my mother. Don't don't tell her you're getting close. Don't tell her somebody's calling. She don't need to know none of that. When you solve the murder, then you can call my mother. Like, just leave my mother alone. And he didn't ever call her again. Tragedy has followed the Siscone family. His brother Jojo died young in the 80s. And his brother Andrew, the one who chased down Dominic's killer, died in 2002. Their parents are also dead. Mildred is Dominic's only close family member left. She's never forgotten her brother, but after all these years, she doesn't expect that his case will ever be solved. But there's someone else who hasn't forgotten about Dominic. Someone else whose life was changed by his murder. And after four decades, an NYPD chief who's as Brooklyn as they get, entering 2021 with a new job title, retired. He grew up in Brooklyn, joined the NYPD in 1979, and spent the majority of his career working the streets of his own borough. When Deputy Chief Charles Scholl retired in December of 2020, his advice to other cops was to remember why they became a cop in the first place. And he became a cop, at least in part because of Dominic Siscone. I learned fast. If you're going to be a good cop, you got to learn where you're coming from. So 
away you go and kill. He was very upset about it. He was determined to uh, become a cop after that, to, do, to, to go after and find the person that did it. That's Todd Mazel, a retired reporter from Brooklyn who covered Shoal for decades. Oh, he, 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 you know, he was always an optimist, so he would always look for ways to, to resolve things. He you know, couldn't solve that case, but he, he made, you know, he, he had influence on other cases because of it. Scholl became known as a huge force for good in Brooklyn over the course of his 41-year career. His influence on the community was huge. Uh, people came to respect him and in all types of situations. He was really a man of integrity, and he would he, he understood how to talk to people. Even the bad guys kind of came around to him. Scholl is still hoping that something or someone out there can help crack Dominic's case. Hopefully, you know, your podcast can, you know, maybe bring some light to an old, an old story. They're all, they're all not solvable, but... You know, at least, at least people know that police didn't forget. Shoeleather is a production of the Columbia Graduate School of Journalism. This episode was reported, written, and produced by me, Rachel Bailey. And me, Claire Amari. Joanne Farian is our executive producer and professor. Rachel Quester and Peter Leonard are our co-professors. Special thanks to Columbia Journalism Librarian Christina Williams, Columbia Digital Librarian Michelle Wilson, Civil Rights Attorney Ron Kuby, Madeline Barron and Samara Freemark from In the Dark, Emily Martinez and David Blum from Audible, and Professor Dale Maharaj. Additional sound mixing by Peter Leonard. Shoe Leather's theme music, Squeegees, is by Ben Lewis, Doran Zunis, and Camille Miller. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about Shoe Leather in this episode, go to our website, shoeleather.org. To stay up to date on the latest Shoe Leather happenings, follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash shoeleathercast and on Instagram and Twitter at shoeleathercast. <laughs>